Market. The S&P, the ISX stocks. This is Motley Fool Money. Welcome to Motley Fool Money and welcome to 2021. I'm Scott Phillips and with me as always and most importantly for this brand new year, Dr. Anirban Mahanti. G'day, Doc. How are you, mate? Happy New Year, mate. It's 2021. Hopefully, it it's not as bad as 2020. Oh, mate. I, I'm not even... You know what? Like, for the whole of 2020, I've been saying, wait till we get to 2021. Frankly, mate, the news of the last couple of weeks, I'm not ready to... <laughs> I'm not ready to hope that 2021's better just yet. I, I mean, I hope by the end of 2021, we're in a much better spot, but... It doesn't sound like the new year's going to start spectacularly well. Put it that way. There's still uh, there's still enough stuff well, to keep us well, uh, not not pessimistic, just maybe realistic. Maybe that's the best way to put it. Maybe I'm going to be the optimistic here today. Because <laughs> I want to say, like 2020 was so bad. How much worse can I guess can almost oh, get that's worse? That's the problem, but... right? That's what I don't want to say because you know, like I, I, if we turn this out into 2019, you know, how bad could 2020 possibly be? It's like well, uh, <laughs> which is mate a lovely way to actually step into the podcast. Uh, this is a, look, this is going to be a different podcast. We're not uh, we're pre-recording this one as we have right through the Christmas season. Um, so happy New Year to everybody. We hope you enjoyed your Christmas and and the Boxing Day break. Um, we are going to take a bit of time to look back a little bit, look forward a little bit. Um, and then if we have some time, we will maybe get to some mailbag too, mate. We've got lots of great questions. We always love doing mailbag, uh, as our listeners know, and our listeners seem to like it too. So we'll do a bit of that if we can. Speaking of moving from 2019 to 2020, mate, it normally there's, there's those articles that get published about this time of year or maybe a couple of days ago, kind of reflecting on 2020 or the year that's just gone. And normally it's one of those years when you kind of go, oh, that's right, that happened. And it's kind of a, a walk down memory lane, a bit of nostalgia, a bit of a kind of, you know, what happened to who and when and how. This year, we don't need much reminding. And I think that's, you know, so I, I'm not sure how to, how to address the, uh, <laughs> the the big story of, of uh, uh, the big stories of the year. I mean, obviously, if we wind our way all the way back, we started the year with bushfires, if you can believe. Um, and that was that was a huge deal. Um, and then, of course, February 19 was the, we didn't know it at the time, but it was to be the high point for the ASX. The market fell, I want to say about 38%, Doc, I think it was top to bottom uh, by mid-March. And then, frankly, came back really quickly. We had the fastest bear market in history, the fastest recovery in history. We then had a recession and a really, really deep quarterly uh, decline. Then a, then a you know, reasonably ordinary second or second quarter, if you like, or the third quarter of the financial year, calendar year, sorry. And then we're now back in growth. <laughs> the, the the story of, of 2020, if you'd, if you'd literally closed the doors... 2019, you're woken up this morning, you'd be in a situation where you'd say, well, hang on, this, you know, not much seems to have happened. I mean, the market will probably be up. We don't know yet. No, we're still, as I said, we're recording this on, on the 22nd of December. So goodness knows what happens. I'm not prepared to make any predictions to how the, the year will end. We'll, we might we might check back on that when we uh, when we get back in the new year. But um, mate, it's one of those, I, 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 I guess I'll ask you the question. How do you characterize the year that was from an investing perspective? Well, for, from an investing perspective, 2020 was actually not bad, right? I right. mean, uh, yeah, if you've invested, you know, since the beginning of the year, you'd have done well. If you've invested, you know, for the past five years, you'd have done well. Um, yeah, so, I mean, like, uh, my increasingly, my thing is that, you know, we, we, conflate too many things right we conflate mm. what's going on with the economy with the market they're not necessarily the same thing uh, there are there are relationships directly but yep. they don't necessarily mean that you know if the economy is not doing well that the market would not do well uh, and and vice mm. versa right and 
yeah, and there's been a lot of quantitative easing going on. It's been actually going on for a long time, mm. <laughs> with no end in sight. So that has right, helped right. uh, help the market. Record low um, rates. Yep. Record low rates. Uh, I mean, at a higher level, though, there's been also like a lot of innovation happening, right? So, I mean, that's the other thing that the sort of the pace of innovation has been quite relentless, which I think mm-hmm. is again showing through in in parts of the market. So. I think from an investing point of view, it has been it has been great. It has not been great from a living's you know living standard, living quality <laughs> exactly. point of view. People yeah. haven't been able to go on their holidays. They can't do their Christmas, you know, or hope. You know, we don't know how we are recording this before Christmas, right? so we don't know mm-hmm. how uh, you know people. Are. But irrespective of what's happening here, I mean, worldwide, uh, people are not celebrating uh, their uh, you know the holiday season and their time off in diff- you know the way they used to, right? So a lot of things have changed. Yeah. And a lot of things have probably permanently changed, um, but yeah, I mean, around this time of the year, I usually have always been away. Everything's changed, yeah, 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 yeah. And this year, I'm not. So again, like I think, but from an investing point of view, I think if you were invested all through, even if you were just invested in the market, I think you'd have done well. Um, like you know, market ETFs would have done well, and if you had been invested in you know selective uh, you know companies and in selective sectors or subsectors, you'd have done well. So I think from an investing point of view, good. Mm. I like it, mate. Yeah, right. Um, as we record this, uh, we're about one hundred and ten odd points up on the all odds, which is probably a couple of percent, so maybe one and a half percent, which is not bad considering where where we've been through the year. Um, I mean, it's all it's all arbitrary, right? The year end numbers. If the if the year had ended. On March 19, of course, it'd be a massive fall and all that kind of stuff. So it's it's a trick of the calendar to some degree. Mate, um, what about lessons or um, kind of observations about 2020? So if we maybe maybe included COVID, maybe excluding COVID altogether, are there particular thoughts you've got, um, lessons for our listeners, um, successes, failures, warnings, opportunities? If you look back and say, you know, did, did you learn something this year? Did you find something out were you kind of impressed or unimpressed by something what what kind of lessons would you take from 2020 as an investor so again some may be covid related some may not but um you know it, with the with the opportunity to reflect uh what sort of things would you would you drag out yeah so like uh, I've, it, this is something that i've repeated a number of times i think the importance of balance sheet um it was clearly on display this year. Like if you had a good balance sheet and the ability to sort of withstand um, troubling times, mm. then you were much better off versus being in a situation where your balance sheet was poor and you had debt and your debt was contingent on you having operating profits. Yeah. So I think that the you know balance sheet is often ignored because we all must... We have a tendency to focus on earnings, and earnings can be gamed to many uh, in many different ways. That's number one. Mm-hmm. Um, number two, then then you know people then move on and say, okay, I'm going to look at the cash flow statement and look at you know free cash flow. Free cash flow is also okay, or operating cash flow is okay. But if you have no operations, then you don't have those things. <laughs> so so ultimately, yeah. your fallback really is is the balance sheet. So I think good balance sheet management is is really. I mean, one of the things that was in display, you know, that separated. Mm-hmm those that had ugly situations versus those that didn't. Uh, the other thing that I think this is a surprise, the other thing that really surprised me is the ability of the market to provide equity infusion. Yeah, the number right. of companies that raised capital is like yeah. staggering yeah. and the amount of money that has been pushed into the market is, is staggering. Mm-hmm. 
almost indisciplined in many ways. And if I would have thought, you know, the market could have been more disciplined in providing cash. It was an indisciplined. Everybody raised money, mm-hmm. right? Uh, maybe that is just a function of there's just all this money floating around with nobody knowing what to do. That was the other thing that was a display. Um, I think the other thing, the third thing, and this is maybe I'm drawing, I'm making too much of it. Again, I would like to caveat everything that I'm saying with the fact that these are just observations. None of these things are... You know, and you could you could you could always take the counter side and make an argument, and you'd be right. <laughs> yeah, so yeah, yeah. so so the you know take them f- with a, a huge pinch of salt. The third thing I think I saw was uh, I did not expect that kind of bounce back. So this is the other thing: the unexpected behavior of markets and society as a whole. Um, you know, there's a lot of randomness, right, mm. in the stuff that happens, right? So we had. You know, a really steep decline, and then, you know, really quick recovery, right? Um, and I wouldn't have expected either, given, you know. And again, if, and my point of view is that again, rationality is also not necessarily true. Like, so I mean, my rational mind, uh, I would think that the equity markets should not have funded many of the companies that they landed up funding. Right, right. And I would have thought, in another world, they would have gone bankrupt. Right, and so I call these companies pseudo bankrupt in many ways because they, you know, they're basically technically bankrupt, uh, but they were not bankrupt because either they were suspended or not trading, or you know, the law was bent, changed the last time to allow them to be not bankrupt, uh, technically speaking. But anyways, so I, th- I think again, there's a lot of vari- variation, variability that happens that I think is unpredictable, which is the other thing. And I think the last thing I would say is that I think the one thing that seems apparent to me is I think the best place to make a bet if you have to make a bet is to bet on technology because and I think on the right of course you have to make the bet on the right sort of technology because I mean that's sort of in a living standards in a way we live that's where progress is going to come from right it's basically going to come from technology leaps and therefore in you know being invested in technology and technology leaps is sort of the yeah, the easiest way, I guess, to buy growth and have some fail-safe um, option, because I mean, the moment the technology side doesn't work for you, basically, well, yeah, nothing's really going to work because I mean, that's where we are getting our, you know, improvements in living standard, you know, better quality of life and everything else. So, so I think those are sort of high-level takeaways for me. Nice, man. I like that a lot, actually. Um, I'll I'll throw some of my own. The first thing I'm going to say is is kind of the way we opened up, which is to say that. You know, if, if this year has taught you anything as, as an investor, as you're listening to this podcast, is stop listening to forecasts, stop listening to forecasters, stop listening to predictors. Um, no one knows what's happening next. Sometimes they just extrapolate, get lucky. Other times they make an outlandish claim and get lucky. And sometimes they miss it by a million miles. Um, ironically, there would have been some prognosticator who said, oh, the ASX will probably finish flat for the year. And they'll be kind of right in air quotes. Um, but unless they predicted a you know, a huge pandemic and then all the things that Doc's talked about in terms of company responses, regulator responses, government responses, um, you know, the prognostications are, are a waste of time. No one predicted, you know, COVID, some sort of once in a century pandemic, um, all the stuff that comes with that. You just, it's just, you know, I want to repeat, it's a waste of time. There's an old line from John Kenneth Galbraith that um, pundits forecast not because they know, but because they're asked. I think that's exactly right. And so, you know, you can, you can 
frankly, I was going to say you could afford to. You should ignore forecasts because they're not going to help you. And and maybe they're even going to harm you. So that's the first thing. Pandemics happen uh, irregularly. Next year, maybe you have a great year. Maybe you have a terrible year. Um, again, as Doc said, the speed of the fall and the recovery. Um, no one, no one predicted that stuff. It's it, you know, it, it should twenty twenty should tell you, show you very clearly, as every other year should, by the way. But this one, in very stark relief, how useless and, and a waste of time it is to try and forecast stuff. Um, next thing, just from a. Um, and you mentioned, Doc, the COVID stuff. I'll take a, I'll take kind of a similar but slightly different kind of take on it, which is um, be careful with extrapolating what should, in air quotes, happen. We use a lot of air quotes. What should happen versus what will or, or is happening. And so the, the you know, famously, look, I, I don't, it's easy to jump on Steve Keen who made his house price bet. It was it 2006 or something, Doc, I think. He said a house price to fall 40%. Um, lost the bet, had to walk up Kosciuszko, um, but maybe with Rory Robertson famously. Uh, and and his, Keane's response or excuse was, well, I would have been right except that government did X, Y, and Z or except the Reserve Bank did X, Y, and Z. Now, that's kind of not very useful, right? Because there's no point in being you know intellectually right if my assumptions had proven correct because that, by the way, means you're wrong. <laughs> so, you know, um, I, could, I, could, I could fly if I had wings. It's just not a very useful approach to, to life. And so remembering, understanding, thinking about the way individual governments, regulators, and then world governments and regulators will respond to things should be part of your thinking. Now, to Doc's point, you can simply ignore the economy altogether, but those who tried to make bets on what should have happened, did happen, will happen, might happen, um, it's all fine. But it's all useless because governments did do things. They will do things. Um, and so, you know, the, the, the old thing of, well, I would have been right if this had happened, it's just not very useful. It's just, it's just, it's just you know, a waste of time. So A, I said don't forecast. But B, just be careful with your thinking that you don't – you're not too absolutist about the, the way you're investing and the way you're thinking about how stuff should happen. Um, if that makes sense. So that that's that's an important one for me. Um, the bounce back is important, Doc. And I think for me, one thing I really want to drive home is, you know, we I, I agree with you, mate. We didn't know how quickly things would bounce back. But as I said regularly during the year in print, on video, on podcast, the economy, sorry, the market has always set, or sorry, firstly, whenever we've had a fall, the ASX has always, the US markets have always got back to those previous highs and then surpassed those highs. And so during March, April, May, now, now some people listening to this saying, well, thanks, Scott, you should have told me at the time or, you know, um, I, I sold, don't, don't rub it in. I get all that. Why I'm saying it now is because this is the time to look back, right? At the time when I say, hey, don't fret, things will get back to normal, things will be better, don't, don't freak out, don't sell, it's tempting to say, oh, well, it's easy for you to say I'm going to sell because I'm scared, I'm worried, I'm nervous, I'm whatever. I get all that. I get the feelings. The reason doing it after the fact is to say, remember, A, we told you. So um, I, I will say to some degree, I hope that makes us a little bit more worth listening to because we've been through the ringer with you. But secondly, looking back with the without the, the emotion of the time, the market has always got back to and then surpassed previous highs. Now, there's no guarantee it would, but it's a pretty good bet in my view. And so, you know, if you want, we wanted you to buy during March, April and May, June, um, but at the very least, we wanted you not to at least not sell because the market was going to recover, in my view. It has. I didn't expect it to be happening so quickly, Doc. Um, I'm, I'm frankly flabbergasted at the pace of the fall of the recovery. But, it, you know, it doesn't surprise me in the slightest that we're back to the, the beginning of the year levels. Now, we're not back to February 19 levels, by the way, so we're not yet at those highs. Um, there's still some upside left, but I think one of the easiest bets this year, the easiest 
um, investments to make. Well, simply, and, and we don't necessarily buy the index, we buy individual stocks. But the easiest thing to do is just buy the index the whole way through. When the market's off 10, then 20, then 30, then 38%, just buying the index and waiting for the market to recover was it about the the simplest no-brainer bet I think there was on the markets and and there has been for many years. Now that's gone. Uh, so the next thing I want to talk about is it's a version of that which is don't wait for the you know don't wait for the recovery to buy the recovery. I don't know if I said this stock I probably did a couple of weeks ago, but I've been asked half a dozen times in the last three weeks, four weeks, you know um, what what recovery stock should I buy? <clears throat> and my answer is always unfortunately, well there's stocks you could buy for different reasons, but the recovery's over. The recovery's done. As we've just said, share prices are back to their you know, January one levels. Um, you know, just because now the recovery is here, now you've got confidence that everything's okay. Well, that's not the time to start looking for recovery stocks. The recovery's done. Now, there might be individual companies out there that are under appreciated by the market, they've been left behind. There might still be opportunities to buy some stuff, but more broadly, on a, on a larger level, I really do think you want to be looking across the across the board and making sure. You've got the right um, uh, the, the right approach to your stocks at the right times. You, you want to be buying when the market's low, uh, as Warren Buffett says. Be greedy when others are fearful. I'm actually wearing the shirt today, Doc. Um, you know that's that's you know that's exactly how you should invest as an investor. Now, again, we don't time the market. We're not saying sell everything at some point, buy everything at another point. Just at least hold, as I said, and buy if you can. Um, mate, that's probably that's probably it for my observations. There's a few there, um, not massively different for yours. Some are just a different slant on the same kind of thing. But I think uh, it feels almost lazy and it feels almost negligent, but but to say, you know, the kind of the old standby, but it's true. Long-term investing just wins, right? And so for all of 2020, um, if you've done nothing other than just hold the stocks you owned, you, you made a little bit of money this year. Now the market's up a couple of percent without dividends. So you've got the average market dividend, you're probably up 5%, maybe a little bit less because there weren't as many dividends paid this year. But, you know, you, you've, you've had a decent year and uh, it's not, not spectacular, not a wonderful year. But given where we've been, given where the economy is, a very, very, very decent year. Um, so you know, it's worth it's worth just kind of throwing that into the mix. I will actually throw one more mate very, very quickly, which is just, you know, you don't have to be a, a value investor or use discounted cash flow analysis to do this. But it, it, it was always probable, in my view, that the market's selling off by forty percent when COVID was always going to be resolved one way or the other in a relatively quick amount of time. And I say quick as in months to years, not not you know days and weeks was always a massive overreaction. And so, you know, the market does overreact. It, it you know, um, Doc, you talked in, I think on, uh, uh, well, I'm sure it's the previous podcast or one coming up actually because we're recording these out of order. Um, you talk about, you know, making, you know, be, not letting the market be your master. And I think to some degree, you know, if you do it, uh, Jeremy Siegel, a Wharton professor, I've talked about this before on the podcast, said at, at the very outbreak of the, of the pandemic, if you lose one year's profits, that should be about 10% of your share price on the basis of, any and any reasonable analysis, um, the, the the first year of profits you take out of a DCF should cost you about ten percent of your share price. If the market falls forty percent, it's telling you it thinks the company's going to make no money for four years, give or take. Now, discount it back and blah, maybe it's even five years, but close enough to four years. That was just stupidly unlikely in my view. And now individual companies, sure, I agree, um, but you know, for the market to have forty percent on something that was always going to be a transient thing, the market always, always overreacts. The GFC had overreacted. The eighty-seven crash had overreacted. Um, the 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 world is full. The stock market is full. The history is full of examples of markets simply overreacting, and then all of a sudden coming back to some sort of normalcy. And go, oh yeah, yeah, that's right. Things aren't so bad after all. That is a spectacularly great opportunity for the for the individual investor to try and. Um, take advantage of or at at the very, very least not sell. So just bear that in mind. I hope for our listeners, 2020 made as a year of learning from history, uh, taking some of these lessons so that next time things happen, 
uh, th- we're much much better positioned to remember <laughs> and to um, respond to market ructions, economic ructions, company ructions the way we should, um, which is to to keep calm, remain you know level headed, and and do the right things at the right time, and keep investing basically, and, and not getting freaked out by what's happening in the market. Any, any thoughts or um, reflections on that, mate? No, I think that all, all sounds great to me. Nice. Thank you, sir. Now, I want to now look forward, mate. We're going we're to look back again in a minute, uh, but let's look forward for a second first. As we go into 2021, I guess the, the question remains or, or becomes, how do you feel about the market, about investing, about companies? I mean, we've talked about some of the successes in 2020, and it's probable that both of us will say more of the same is probably right. But are there any thoughts you have in terms of, Looking forward, as we start the brand new calendar year, and you're advising our listeners as we do this, we can't give personal advice, of course, but generally speaking, um, as we advise our listeners of of kind of how to invest in 2021, what messages, whether they're year-specific, recovery-specific, COVID-specific, or just generic, what things would you want to leave our listeners with to to kind of keep us touchstones as we go through 2021? Well, uh, I'd say more of the same. Like, I mean, everything that we have said, uh, everything that you were saying, I think kind of holds in um, 2021 too. Um, so I think, you know, just continuing doing the, you know, uh, as I say, you know, work, uh, earn, save and invest. And that's that's a very powerful mechanism. It, it doesn't show up mm. immediately. It doesn't show up in the first year. It doesn't show up in the second year. It doesn't show up even in the fifth year. <laughs> maybe, right. maybe after the 10th year, you start seeing the difference <laughs> that, you know, compounding does. Yeah, yeah, and if you do yeah. this for a couple of decades, then, you know, like it's really, really very powerful. So I think, you know, again, think about compounding is what I would say. In terms of, like, if two individual investors, this is what I would say, it really pays to think out of the box and to think mm. away. So if, you know, like, if you want to buy a blue chip, for example, you want to ask the question, what is it that you have to the thesis that others don't have, mm. right? So that's an example, like, you know, if you want to buy CSL, then you have to have some conviction to believe that, you know, that the information is not priced into a market. So what that is, is something you you need to know. And that applies, I think, so it's much harder at, at the blue chip level, at, at you know, well-known, well-followed companies to have that mm-hmm. differentiated view. Perhaps the only differentiated view you could have is that, you know, maybe the market thinks that the growth is going to be for five years and you think it's going to be for 20 years. So that's one yeah, yeah. area. But you really want to think about, I guess, TAM, or total addressable mm-hmm. market for uh, for businesses. Think about you know whether the business has uh, pricing power. You know, is it a global brand? Is it a local brand? Mm-hmm. What does sort of what sort of levers can it pull? And I think it, that's one thing I'd say. The other thing I'd say to sell to investors is do not pay attention that much to earnings, especially because they're so much so fudged. Uh, you know, there are all <laughs> these things like. Uh, you know, adjusted earnings, adjusted for everything. Well, if you adjust everything, yeah. well, you know, uh, you'll see even, you know, I'm sure there'll be earnings before COVID, for example, <laughs> earnings <laughs> after COVID. <laughs> like, I mean, did, what did is earnings try before that? Co- They tried to back out the entire COVID impact and talk about 
adjust. I'm pretty sure they did that during the, the last earnings season. I, I'm sure that there's so many of them. It's not just I don't, don't want to pick anyone. And I mean, I get it why you're doing it, but it's just be careful of that. The other thing I'd be careful about is all the companies that have had massive COVID bumps because mm, of mm. you know various reasons. So, for example, think about companies uh, that are operating in Australia where dollars have flown because people have not spent their money elsewhere and people are so yeah, used to right. spending their money, they've just spent it on something else. Really good point. Yep. Those things are going to have year-over-year declines yes. uh, at some point, right? And the market is going to hate it. <laughs> you stole my thunder beautifully, mate, but keep going. Yeah, so that's something, again, I'd be very, very careful about. If you're an individual investor, what I'd say is look, if you can find businesses that are scaling beautifully, that are under the radar or the market hates, but you know why (laughs) you are right and they're wrong, that's where you're going to make your money. Like, that's where I think, you know, you know, so looking for underfollowed, misunderstood, yet fast growing businesses yeah, i think yeah. that's that's an opportunity that still remains un, untapped mm. to a large extent mm. so i think those are the sort of things ideas directions i would ask people to think about love that mate um i'm gonna i'm gonna do two things i'm gonna start with a, a personal finance perspective then go to shares picking specifically um uh, you talk about company balance sheets doc and and look one thing i want to i'm gonna be the boring guy for a second one thing that we've yeah, you said companies you know, balance sheets mattered all of a sudden when things got tough, and I'm going to apply that for 2021 to our individual household balance sheets. Now, um, the government would love us to go and spend our money rather than, rather than save it, but at an individual household level, um, yes, there's job keeper and job seeker. Maybe they come back, maybe they don't. Yes, there's other safety nets, but please do yourselves a favor, particularly if you're someone who the household savings rate, by the way, is through the roof right now, um, and that's been spectacular. So, if you're someone who's been able to save a bit of cash or you haven't yet but you might be able to please think about 2021 as the year to basically get your house in order and if you don't invest as much by the way that's okay as an investor i'm supposed to say invest everything invest everything um doc and i both have offset accounts um that are you know have rainy day cash in them for very good reason we don't invest all of our available money not because we're waiting to time the market necessarily or that could be part of it but just literally a case of you know what we don't want to be at the mercy of the world in whatever form that takes and so as you go into 2021 please think about how you can fortify your household balance sheet so you, you sleep better you ha- you're less likely to be put your finances at risk you're less likely to lose your house you're less likely to have the stress and the drama that goes with it frankly by the way if you're in a relationship money issues are the number one issue there too so you know you will be much better off it's always tempting to spend. It's always tempting to put stuff on credit card or afterpay or God knows what. Just do yourselves a favor. Do me a favor if, you, if nobody else and save some cash. Um, set yourself up for, for, for a good position. And then once you've done that, put your, put a regular investing plan in place. Put some money regularly. Uh, ideally, when you get paid, transfer some cash before you spend anything else into an investment account and then invest that money regularly. Develop some of those habits. So for me, 2021, yeah, as Doc said, we're not traveling as much. There's more cash around for many people. Yeah, you can go and buy a sofa, you can buy a lounge, you can buy a new TV, whatever you want to do. Um, but please think about how you might be able to put some of that money aside and start regular or add to regular investing and saving habits. You can always save money, I promise you. I don't want, to, I don't want you to live a miserly life. I don't want you to live miserably. Um, but find a way to save some cash and, and do yourself a favor. So from, from, an in, from, a, from a personal finance perspective, those are the first two things I want you to do. Investing-wise, I said, Doc, you did some my thunder. Um, I said during the year in 2020 that you should ignore COVID's impact on companies when you think about how much to pay for the shares 
in the sense that this year doesn't matter. Last year didn't matter. Um, you need to you need to value your purchases by your stocks based on the underlying earnings power of a business. So whether that was a company that had a really terrible year because customers walked away, assuming they come back, and I think they mostly will, and there are some different circumstances, but have a think about that business and ask yourself not how much do they earn in 2020 or even how much will they earn in 2021, the current financial year. Of course, we're only halfway through, so it'd be a weird one. But think forward and say, how much how much they earn in a normal year moving forward? In future, how much will they earn? How much do I want to pay for that company? And as Doc said, add the growth, of course, over time. I'm not saying use a static earnings number, but but go back to sort of the underlying earnings power of those businesses. And that goes both ways. Don't pay too much for a business that has a cracking 2020 that's simply not going to repeat that. I mean, Harvey Norman sold a truckload of chest freezers. I promise you they're not going to sell more of the chest freezers in 2021 than they did this year because we've already bought them. Anyone who wanted to buy a chest freezer has already done it. They're out of, they're out of stock. Um, Nick Scarley had a spectacular year. How many couches do you need? Even Kogan, I own shares in Kogan. We'll talk about that again in a second. But, um, you know, they, they, they've already, you know, people have already bought a truckload of TVs and everything else you can buy from Kogan. So, you know, expect that 2021 will be a tougher year for those businesses. I'm not saying sell the shares either, by the way. I'm just saying understand how much that business is worth based on the underlying earnings power, not last year's... Think, think of Woolies. Woolies stars are up by 12%, Doc, in the last half. Um, you know, I promise you, they're not going to grow stars at 12% every year from here on. And frankly, year on year, they'll probably decline, I would assume. By the time we go through the flour and toilet paper in our cupboards and then go back out to dinner at some point and, you know, that 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 stuff will normalize. So be very, very careful, as Doc says, on both directions. Don't underpay, but don't overpay either. Make sure you understand what business you're buying and what a regular ongoing earnings season, earnings power will look like for those particular companies. So that's, that's another one. In terms of thinking about 2021, I guess the other... Um, the other kind of message—it's a bit of a—it's a bit of a, a riff on the same kind of topic of underlying earnings power. But just remember, you know, which businesses are likely to be successful and remain successful and become more successful as a result of COVID. There was a, a time, Doc, when when you and I were very very young. We're, we're very young men, so you know, we maybe maybe we were even bored at the last recession. I'm not sure. No, we were. Sorry. Um, recessions normally have the impact of weeding out the the, the weaker companies. And the stronger companies end up coming coming out stronger. Now, there are different cyclical factors and there's reasons why that's not always the case. But if you think about the way that tends to work, um, the, the fluctuating economy favours the stronger businesses. And Doc, you talked about some of those stronger businesses already. Think about some of those companies that are doing well and will keep doing well um, as others fall by the wayside. We don't wish any business ill, um, but remembering, of course, that you know over time, the strongest, best businesses will grow at faster rates than the rest. Now, again, you've got to be careful what price you're paying. But generally speaking, um, remember that you know tough economic times tend to favour the good ones, the best ones, uh, at the expense of the others. And I, you know, Doc, you talk a lot about, I don't know if we've talked much on the podcast, about tier one, tier two, tier three companies. We won't get into specific definitions. But generally speaking, you should expect the highest quality businesses to do better long term. That sort of should be, uh, should be a tautology almost by definition. But remember that when you're buying shares, don't be tempted to grab the cheap rubbish <laughs> or even the you know relatively cheap relatively rubbish companies um, yeah there's, there's, there's opportunities to everyone, everyone invests differently you can make you buy turnarounds there are opportunities to make money just remember that the best companies tend to outperform over the over the very long term and that's when you've got a compound over the long term if you can put more of those in your portfolio that's probably going to give you the best chance of being successful any more thoughts on that, mate? I think that was brilliant. I love your uh, household balance sheet thing. That's fantastic. Oh, I just, you know, like, a, yeah, I, I, won't, I won't do it again, but yeah, I just, I just think it's, 
for, for we, we can give the best stock picks in the world, but if people haven't got the cash to do it, uh, and all they end up having to sell their shares to you know repair the fridge or buy a new car, then we haven't really helped anybody. You know, don't 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 invest for three years or five years and then go and take the money out, please. Um, we want you to invest for your retirement, right? By all means, live off the income when you get it, but uh, you can't compound if you're taking your money out every two or three years to to you know pay for a holiday or, or or pay the bills or buy a car or whatever you want to do. So, if you can get that organised, that's a that's a smart smart way to go. Doc, um, let's let's go back to back, or let's go back to looking back. Is probably the better way to put it. We're going to look very quickly, and you, you sent me this, and I, I thought I wonder why you sent me this, and I looked at the numbers, and I realised why you sent me this. Um, we're going to do a quick <laughs> look back on some of the stocks we picked over the last couple of years on this podcast. We're not going to give you the new ones. That's next week. You'll have to wait till next week, but we're going to whet your appetite with a look back. And so remember, uh, of course, last week we chose some stocks, some Christmas stocks, and we'll track those as well over time. So if you haven't had a chance, go back to our Christmas Day episode. And we kind of picked some stocks ideally for, I mean, it doesn't really matter who they are for, but we kind of made a bit thematic and picked for relatives or friends or people that are in certain circumstances, just an excuse to talk about individual companies and, and put some of those on the record. On the, on the, on the record. So we did that. The, the list we tend to spend more time on, though, we, we'll talk about regularly. Are the stocks we picked for the long term, once a year or so we do it, we tend to do it at the beginning of the year. Now, Doc, I'm going to go back to our 2020 list and I'm going to roll through some some numbers and I'll give you a chance to maybe make some comments on on what you've learned or what, you, what you've drawn from that particular scenario. If so, you followed, so you, Fools, I go on, Doc. So you're not going to do the 2019? I will. I'll do 2019 after. I'm going to do 2021. Ah, okay, okay, fine. Is that all right? <laughs> Oh, that's fine. I think we'll do that. the best for last, okay. dude. Okay. <laughs> um, so if you follow Doc's advice a year ago, you are, spoiler alert, 60% better off. That's pretty good in a year that, uh, well, the market's got almost nowhere. And frankly, life has been tough. Doc recommended for you. And I'll let me go in, in uh, I'll go in reverse order. So Doc had one losing stock this year. And it was Volpara Health Technologies. It was down 28% which kind of hurts, right? Except if you pick the rest of these stocks because he also chose Circo for you. That was up 11%. Alteryx, the US company, up 23%. And then get this, Stoneco doubled up 98.6%. And MongoDB, the database business, almost tripled up from $134 to $383 for a 185% gain in just 12 short months. That is an average return of 60% or 57.95 to be precise at the time of recording. Uh, that is a spectacular result, Doc. Well done. And I hope our listeners did listen. I hope they did follow along with your stock picks. But just any any reflections on that? Any uh, thoughts, ideas, observations that you take from that the five stock selection that we threw at our listeners this time last year? Well, it's on, uh, first of all, it's only a year. So we don't know what's going to happen uh, going forward. The, the one thing that did surprise me, actually, I would have thought, Volpara would do much better than actually did. I'm actually quite right, surprised right. with Volpara's performance. And I'm actually surprised that Circo is up given it's a travel company. So that's, that's yes, a yes. bit of time, a bit yeah. of timing. I would have actually thought Circo would be down significantly. Circo is mm. not down that much. Um, that surprises <laughs> yes, me. Right. So those are the two things that um, uh, surprised me in that result. 
Very nice. And mate, Stone Co and MongoDB, were there particular things that happened in those businesses? Was it the market just all of a sudden cottoning onto what you already saw? Was there ongoing growth or success? Any, just any yeah. quick observation on those two? So MongoDB is is an interesting business because again, because of the way they're doing databases, it's a new way of doing databases. It's not relational. It's this basically document style database thing. Mm. One of the things that I think people underrate and it takes people at some time to understand is a people worry too much about the incumbents beating out new technology. Mm. Often incumbents have a hard time beating out new technology if the new technology is being done by a company which is really good. So in this case, that's uh, you know, uh, Amazon has tried, Microsoft has tried, and they've both not been able to successfully, you know, uh, beat Mongo. So they've basically just landed a partnering. Number two is I think. MongoDB is not one of the highest growth businesses out there, but the thing is that this is such a big market and this is such mm. a good technology, you could deliver 35% per annum growth in sales for 10, 15 years, mm. right? That Maybe 20 years. That's, that <laughs> is pretty powerful. So I think that, you know, some part of the market has started to realize that Stoneco is interesting. Stoneco is a lot like Tyro, except that it runs in Brazil. This is much more it's a payments mm. business. It's a bit like Tyro. You know, they do a lot of software, uh, you know, um, mm. uh, merchant acquisition, to, you know, traffic, you know, basically it's a, it's a tollboat business. What is surprising there that given how bad COVID has been, I would have thought that Stoneco would be hit really hard. But Stoneco is actually, you know, it's a profitable business, really going for fast growing business run by founders. Uh, your favorite company, mm. Berkshire, has uh, has a corner store holding in it. Um, as, as as I've made, n- noted before, Berkshire has got corner store holdings in many different private payments businesses around the world, and they tend to have these holdings before uh, companies IPO. I don't think it's it's I don't think it's Warren. It's one of his uh, lieutenants doing yeah, this. Yeah. But um, but again, you know, profitable, fast growing uh, business. Um, so just you know, people have just realized that maybe the, the growth is here to stay. Very nice, thank you, mate. And yeah, I think that that's that's the interesting. Thing. I think for for some. Um, for some listeners, uh, the, the business hasn't grown sales or profit 185%, but the shares are up 185%. So either one or two things is happening in these sort of circumstances. Either the market's finally catching up or the market's getting too far ahead of itself. And there's there's always those questions if you're if you're an investor thinking, have I missed the boat or, or is this now overpriced? You still think it's a decent value today? Yeah, I like all of these uh, businesses. Like Stoneco actually is growing like earnings uh, at that pace. Like it's, it, it's at that point where, you know, it is tipped into profitability and it is like, you know, it can grow, top, it's probably growing top line, like say 60, 70%, but it's growing earnings at a significantly mm-hmm. faster rate. So. Stone Co is a remarkably fast. Like the way to think about Stone Co is to realize that it's like basically, like its com- competition is like the banks here. So they mm. are, mm. you know, the incumbents. They're slow moving. Stone Co is, you know, very agile, software driven. You know, new age business. So they're just taking market share like crazy. Um, yeah. Very good. Like Thank you, mate. Motley Fool Money. Financial advice for real people, not trust fund hippies. Sign up for the newsletter at fool.com.au forward slash triple M. Now I'll go, I'll go through mine. Mine are a little less impressive, unfortunately. I had uh, I had five stocks that are up a measly 0.16%. At least it's positive, Doc. I'll take some small solace in that one. Um, I'll go through the numbers. I'll, I'll share some learning. So my this is I got I got whacked with COVID. My worst, or partly COVID, actually partly Chinese geopolitics. My worst performer was Treasury Wine Estates, down 42%. My next was corporate travel, hit by COVID, down 11%. 
Berkshire Hathaway had a middling year, down 2%. Uh, and Australian Ethical was up 24%, 25%, while the beta shares NASDAQ 100 ETF was up 31.6%. That's an average of 0.16%. I say barely positive, but I'll take it. A um, couple of thoughts for me on this this lot. The first is it's just a reminder that portfolios matter. Um, you know, two stocks up more than 20%, two stocks down more than 10%. Uh, they're largely a wash. But the you know you can have three losers and two winners and still be okay if you pick quality businesses and you let them do their thing. As Doc said, I'll also reiterate, by the way, it's only one year. Um, I certainly didn't expect <laughs> to expect either COVID or geopolitics to, to be problematic this year. And I got whacked with both of those things on those two stocks, Treasury and Corporate Travel. I should say, by the way, I still own all five of those companies myself. I still like them all. Uh, I'd still buy some in each one today. I'm just going through them to make sure. Yes, um, I'd buy each each one of those today. Um, just one of those things over over a year, it's been an absolute debacle. Uh, Treasury, by the way, I think is still great value at down 45%, 42%. So I'd happily, I will buy some more. I've been saying this for weeks, stock. I still haven't had a chance. I, by the time I, we pre-record podcasts and I mentioned the stock or I write about something, uh, I think I've been planning to buy it for about four weeks now and I still haven't had the opportunity to. So I still plan to at some point. It's now going to be at least the fourth or fifth of January before I get to do that, but we'll see how things uh, see how things pan out. It's uh, it's one of those stories where I think you know, yeah, you know, could have known it was happening, could have known it was going to happen, um, particularly COVID in in, in particular. Also, too, I'll, I'll touch on a couple of the gainers. The Australian Ethical, um, I think, has, has had a really good year up twenty five percent. I think that'll continue, by the way. So it's been super volatile too. Um, shares we we talked about it when they were three dollars ninety four. They're now four ninety one at the time of recording. Again, it could be anywhere by by January one. Um, the you know it's it's been as high as six or seven bucks, and they dock at one point. And as low back down as under four dollars. It's been a really really super volatile ride. That's just life. Um, and again, it's worth worth remembering. Of course, depending on when we did this, if we if we'd done this update in the middle of March or June, it would have been a very very different story uh, on many of these companies. It just so happens that uh, that you know at the end of the year the market's back and and the portfolio or my five anyway are roughly in line with with that market. Probably a little bit behind in the end. I think the market's up one and a half percent. I think I said before. So a slight a slight. Uh, Slight lag, um, but again, not you know in a one year time frame. I've I've never done anything for a year investing wise. I don't intend to start now, so we'll see what happens over the fullness of time. But fair to say, I think it's very very unlikely I'll be catching Doc on this five stock sampler. Make sure we go to twenty nineteen. Um, oh, sorry, go on. I I wouldn't make that claim. <laughs> What's that? Oh no, I, I'm, I'm very. Well, I'm not comfortable with that because maybe <laughs> mine will get whacked this year and yours will catch up. So it's hard. It's like, you know, on any given year, mm-hmm. nobody can make a prediction. It's very, very difficult to make a prediction. You know, it's funny, mate. A really quick tangent. So um, I run Million Dollar Portfolio, one of our services with Andrew Leggett, and we take stocks from your service, Extreme Opportunities, plus mine, Share Advisor, and Ed Vesely's at Dividend Investor. So it's a bit of a uh, – we, we build a portfolio out of stocks from those services. Um, MDP had a had a, had a couple, tough couple of years. We've been lagging the market for a long time, and ironically enough, or maybe not, um, twenty twenty was the year we actually moved meaningfully ahead of the market. And so there's just something around, you know, the, the depending on which stocks you buy, they they some zig, some zag, uh, sentiment, market expectations. I hate the word rotation, but realistically, we know that sometimes stocks do get popular or unpopular for good and bad reasons. Um, uh, Sol Pat's another company I own. We'll, we've got a question on that in a minute, but um, it's it's a stock that's done. You know, it's been all over the place. It, it went up to thirty. It was down back to eighteen at one point. Now back to over thirty dollars again. And it's kind of like Sol Pat's. Like no excuse for that. Woolies has done the same. Uh, sentiment, dear listener, is massively impactful. Um, now I'm not saying this is just sentiment on on mine or Docs, by the way, but just remember that you know it, it, picking two points in time. 
you know, Woolies, just as a simple example, you could have doubled your money or halved your money um, in the same company, even though it's roughly where it started a couple of years ago right now, depending on what price you paid and when you bought it. So just, just remember that sentiment can really, really move the dial. Mate, let's go back a year. Let's go back to 2019. Um, mate, you should pay me to talk about this stuff. Seriously, the way your performance has been. <laughs> um, we we're going to uh, we're going to talk about some of the some of the companies that you recommended two years ago, at the very beginning of 2019. We did think this is 2021, but there you go. I, I double checked myself. Then I turned 20. I was like, how can that be two years ago? And then of course I remembered that it was a new year. Your 2019. If, if you've listened to Doc in 2019, you would be up 355 percent. That is an astonishing, astonishing set of numbers. And again, like the uh, uh, you know breadth of, of portfolios, there's one company that over two years actually lost money for Doc, and that is Premium, the Australian wealth management platform business. Um, that's down 3%. The second one, the second lowest performer, Volparo, we mentioned that in the 2020 list, it was up a lovely 19%, which frankly you would take, if I get 19% on two years, I'd be okay with that. I'd be pretty happy with that. Not necessarily market beating, but pretty close. That's a good result. Then here's the rest of them. We spoke about MongoDB before. Funnily enough, mate, that actually went nowhere in 2019 because the numbers in in uh, 2020 have done all the heavy lifting for you. It's just interesting the way those things work out because Mongo is up 369% in two years, which is just a phenomenal growth. Uh, so I should I should say I was wrong actually. You were up 185 for this year and another 185 or so for last year. So two really good years. Uh, my mistake. I was thinking about another another company. 369% for MongoDB. Kogan up 469%. That's a five bagger, by the way, among friends. And the big daddy, Tesla, up from $63 a share split adjusted to $649 a share split adjusted. That is a 10 bagger. In two short years, up 922.8%. That's a 355% gain for Doc's five stock sampler from 2019. Mate, I don't know what you can say about that other than uh, well done. Any particular thoughts or observations on top of your 2020 list? I'm just waiting for all the podcast listeners to send me a check. <laughs> I'll, pay you, I'll pay you double for the podcast for you. How's that? <laughs> yeah, well, you know, if... if well, I don't... Look, you know, among, I had some very high... So, I think I hold uh, I hold three of them. Yeah, right. so some these were high conviction picks. You know, both MongoDB and mm-hmm. Tesla. I talk a lot about. Uh, I really like those two companies. Uh, for I actually really like Kogan. I don't know why I don't own shares. Uh, you know, the, the funny thing with Kogan is, you know, Kogan where I've gotten into. So this is a, actually this is an observation I want to make. Kogan, I looked at Kogan first at a dollar. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, when we were launching Extreme Opportunities, there's a little bit of a backstory. Bruce asked me, can you give me three? So Bruce, our general manager, uh, asked me, give me three samples of the type of stocks you're going to look at. And I said, okay, mm-hmm. yeah, here's Kogan. And I had, at Kogan, I had the pleasure of speaking with uh, uh, um, both Ruslan and, and David. Uh, right. You know, I'd, And I was super impressed with the way these guys thought about the business. I don't know what happened. I just didn't wreck that company. <laughs> and and then I didn't do it. Well, then I thought it went to two dollars, and I and I was anchoring on their IPO price. All right, yeah. And then I kept anchoring on their IPO price. Then I kept anchoring <laughs> on the fact that it's gone up. So yeah. I, I'm actually very happy that I picked it here, uh, because at that time it looked like great value. But I still mm-hmm. didn't pick it in my service. Mm-hmm. And I don't know what I was saying. So anchoring can really be a big deal sometimes. And yeah. you know, this this is a lesson. And again, it's very difficult to get. Like I try really hard to not anchor. Uh, I don't know. I've, I've, I've said I love Kogan so many times. 
I have not recommended it <laughs> yet. <laughs> so, so, but at least I'm glad I did it here. Um, well done, mate. Well done. Which, which I'm happy for. So that's a little bit less than an anchoring. Very good. Interesting too, by the way, Kogan, uh, so 332 was the price in 2019 when we recommended it. Uh, shares went up to, I think, 6 or $8. They went back to $4.40 in 2020 before jumping higher again. And again, we talk about volatility. I just want to underscore this. I think, you know, it, it, it's easy looking back and saying, oh, $3 to $18, that's fantastic. And it is fantastic. Well done, mate. Um, but, you know, if you'd been a shareholder over that period of time or if you just simply, you know, recommended it over that period of time and watched the share price, it jumped all over the place. And it's just worth remembering. Now, you know, part of the growth, of course, was, was COVID-related. Um, part, I think, to be honest, is, is an extension of their current sales trend. I own shares, by the way. I'll talk about that in a second. But, um, the you know, the, the story there of, of having to withstand that volatility of the market telling you you're wrong a lot. I mean, we – so we recommend – I did recommend it for ShareAdvisor around that price. And again, it, I want to say about six bucks. And so for a while, that recommendation was actually underwater, even as late as – you know, kind of February, was it? Yeah, yeah, late February uh, 2020. The shares been at $4.40. So I was down by, what, about a third on that recommendation? Um, and so, you know, it's, it's so tempting to wonder what the market's telling you, wonder what you're doing wrong, um, you know, obsess over the share price movement. And frankly, I've got to say too, a bit of inside baseball, we get the occasional member who says, what are you guys doing, you idiots? Of course, Kogan's a terrible idea. I told you it was a terrible idea. Now it's down a third. You've, I've lost money on your recommendations. What are you knuckleheads doing? Um, I get it, right? I get I get the feeling. I'm not, I'm not bagging our members for thinking that. That's the, what we're conditioned to think as investors. Uh, you know, we want to make money, all that kind of good stuff. I just want to reiterate, again, that's probably the theme of this podcast, Doc, unintentionally, um, that, you know, we, we're very much in a story of that's that's life, right? That is that is investing. That's that's how we do it. It's what we do. It's how it works. Um, you've just got to see it through. So that's that's the important point. Mate, I'm, um, I'm, I'm pleased to say, at least this time, I'm meaningfully positive. I can't claim that for my 2020 portfolio yet. So I'm hoping that it eventually will be the same as my 2019 portfolio. I'm still lagging you by a very, very long way. But I'm happy to say... I've at least doubled the money of our listeners who followed my list, not as much as yours, but if they bought both, they did very, very nicely indeed. My stocks, I had two losers. And again, um, unfortunately, I got whacked with Treasury Wine Estates and Corporate Travel. Having those two years in a row doesn't work so well when the 2020 numbers were negative. In fact, um, Corporate Travel actually had a terrible year in 2019 and 2020, down two years in a row. Treasury was actually up in 2019, so I was looking good this time last year, unfortunately. All of this year's losses wiped out the gains from 2019. And again, a story of, you know, don't catch chickens either way because that can happen. On the flip side, Berkshire Hathaway, I'm happy to say, is up 14.5%, which is pretty good for a, a lumbering giant. The NASDAQ beta shares ETF up 79% over the last two years. And some of that's probably currency, although it's uh, it's working against us at the, at the present time. And I also recommended, thankfully, Kogan, which is up again that 470%, the same as yours, mate. So the one we both picked... If our listeners had done nothing other than pick that stock, they made five times their money over the last two years. And I think we can be pretty pretty happy about that. Um, broad thoughts on this one. Uh, look, I think, you know, they, they are, again, we're all stocks I owned. Um, companies I was happy to happy to go with. I probably should have re-recommended Kogan last year rather than something else. If I picked just one different stock, that might have made the difference. And I think what I will say is we pick five stock samples for fun to try and kind of show you a little bit about the sort of stocks we like, how we pick them, some of the things we like. Neither Doc nor I would say just buy five stocks. Um, and I dare say, you know, if we bought another five on top of that, 
Uh, I don't know if the things would have been better or worse necessarily, but it does go to show you that but for one or two stocks chosen or not chosen in a, in a portfolio, it can make a massive, massive difference to the result you can get as an investor. So just be mindful of that as you think about your portfolios. Make sure you have enough companies that one is not going to do you harm. Now, in Doc's case, Tesla's done spectacularly well. So having a, a concentrated five-stock portfolio is a great result. Um, but despite that, even he wouldn't say just buy these five companies and nothing else. It is very much a case of make sure you have a portfolio. This is just a, a nice exercise to give you some of our higher conviction ideas um, and give you a sense of just how we think about some companies and some businesses that we think you should put on your investing radar as you go through the process. Anything else on that, Doc? No, oh, I, I think, you know, if you bought all 10, that gets you closer to a portfolio in some sense. Yeah, that's, good. that's a, a good bit point, of, yeah. Yeah, it gives you a little bit of yin and yang together. You know, like uh, one thing that people don't appreciate as much it's actually good to have some down stocks in your portfolio, <laughs> and, and, and and you know, and the reason it is good is it almost means that you have a you know, these are down, something is up. It's quite mm. likely the ones that are down are likely going to be up when yeah. the others that are up yeah, now are down. Exactly. So it's, a, it's a bit yeah. of a yin yang, um, you know. So a yin yang is actually really good um, in in a in a portfolio. It just you know, smooths out volatility. And the reason I say smoothing out volatility is important mm. is. While everybody wants high returns, everybody hates volatility, right? Totally That's, right. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Like, you know, everybody wants, like, I want the 10 bagger, but I don't want any volatility. It doesn't work that way, <laughs> <That's right>. unfortunately. <laughs> yeah. So, so well, it's my Tesla went like, nowhere you know, for six years, I think. And then all of a sudden, it's about tenfold. And almost all those gains were the last, what, two years after six years of going nowhere. You had to wait. I mean, it wasn't super volatile during that time necessarily, but you waited a long, long, long time. For that to play out for six years, Tesla looked like a, a middling stock, a you know, a going nowhere business. All of a sudden, now up tenfold. I mean, if you'd sold that after three, four, or five years out of frustration or or whatever, um, that was an expensive sale. Yeah, and that's just you know, that's looking at a longer time frame, right? Your example of Kogan, yeah. where within a year you've got so much volatility, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean. You could sell off. You could have bought the, you know, shares at three fifty and then sold at four. Look, because right, it right. went to like say fourteen dollars, <laughs> then yep, maybe yep. went back to five, yes, and you could yep. have sold at five, saying this is like you know just is just not working for me, right? So correct, I think correct. you know the volatility is a real deal, and we just need mm-hmm. to learn to live with it. The one, the one thing I think you know, it's it's. <sighs> It's one benefit that if you invest in a managed fund, is a benefit you have that you don't always realize, which is you get a you get a one number result normally every six months or every 12 months as to how your total investments are going. And as investors, I think, and I've banged about this before, look, the longer I do this job, mate, the more I realize that the portfolio perspective is probably the most underappreciated but also most powerful component of investing. And that's kind of what you've already said, but just to double underline it, you know, if, if someone says, oh, look, my, you know, the net tangible asset value of my fund was $1.10 at the beginning of the year, $1.20 at the end, you think, oh, great, 10 odd percent, that's pretty good, I'll take that, that's great. What they don't show you is we've just gone through stock by stock by stock where there's big winners and big losers. You just see the net result. And I think for investors, if we thought more about the portfolio result, as you say, mate, rather than the individual stock result, if we didn't, you know, if we stopped obsessing about individual company performance up, down, and look, we struggle with it ourselves. We're not, we're not automatons. We're not, you know, Star Trek Vulcans. Um, we have emotions and stuff as well. But you know, just the, the, the more we can, the more we can say, look, don't, don't worry about the individual positions. Just look at the portfolio. Of course, try and pick the best stocks, and of course, get rid of the dogs that are the business dogs, not not the share price dogs. Get rid of the businesses that aren't performing, but that volatility is just always going to be with us, right? And I think if we can if we can bring ourselves to make ourselves think about it as a fund manager, i.e., I started the year at X, I finished the year at Y. Again, like we've just done, you know, three of my twenty twenty stocks are down. 
Yet the overall portfolio was about flat. And now, you know, again, not great. I wish it was higher. But that very idea of that's the number that matters right over time, not the individual stocks. Because you're going to have winners, you're going to have losers. And most of them, by the way, you're going to have some of the losers will be winners next year, as you rightly said before. Um, you know, just try, try and think as much as you can at the big picture level. Don't get too obsessed about the winners and losers and let that freak you out, worry you, or frankly, even get too excited about um, because that those things, you know, these two shall pass, as they say. Yeah, and, and, and just in terms of the numbers that we quoted, mm. so they're they're from, I think, January 2nd of each year to now, which you. is December 22nd, and awesome. they do not include dividends. So uh, if your company was paying dividend, then, you know, your returns are technically higher because Beautiful. the dividend was paid. Very nice. Thank you, Matt. That's, that's great. So, Phil, we hope you've enjoyed a bit of a look back. We will next week bring you another list, a 2021 list, where I will desperately try and not let Doc have a three-peat. I'll try and get ahead of him this year. Uh, wish me luck because uh, he's a pretty good stock picker, so I might I might struggle. Uh, in, other, in any case, I think next week's episode will be well and truly worth listening to. Mate, a couple of quick mailbag questions just while we're here because uh, we want to get through some. We've got a lot, but also a couple, one particular that is um, that is score, uh, sorry, portfolio-related. And I, I like this question. So we talk about portfolio, so I thought it's a good one to bring up now from Nick. He says, Hi, Scott and Doc. I recently subscribed to Share Advisor to help me build a portfolio in my newly established self-managed super fund. I'm hoping you can provide some feedback on the way I intend on diversifying my portfolio. Now, Nick, we can. We can't give you personal advice, of course. We can generally give you some, some, some thoughts. Here is the breakdown. Now, here's some rules that Nick set for his portfolio. I kind of I like the thinking. You may have some different thoughts, and, and we'll go through those. But here's, here's his kind of framework for his, for his SMSF. Firstly, he's saying I'm going to be 70% ETFs and 30% individual shares. He's got a rule of having no more than 10% in a single ETF and no more than 2.5% in an individual share. The ETFs he says he likes are mostly beta shares. There's the NASDAQ 100, Asia Technology Tigers, Global Robotics, Global Sustainability, Cybersecurity, Healthcare, Emerging Markets, Australian Sustainability Leaders. And he likes the iShares Global Clean Energy ETF. The single shares he says will be taken from Share Advisor and my own research, mostly Australia and US, approximately 50-50 split. So I kind of like that. That's his, that's his broad framework, which I think is quite cool. He says, my question is, is 10% too much to have in a single industry ETF, i.e. tech, cybersecurity, healthcare, etc.? Also, am I too heavily weighted in tech? To put it in context, I'm currently 39 years old and want to take a more aggressive approach. Look forward to hearing your thoughts. Kind regards, Nick. So man, I, I like the I like the structure. I like the thinking he's gone through. I like the way he's kind of built out his his plan for his for his SMSF. Again, we can't give Nick advice, Doc, so we won't do that. But general thoughts as to a, a portfolio structure with those general rules. Yeah, I can offer some general thoughts to Nick. So Nick, mate, I think I like the, as Scott just highlighted. I think I like I like the pre thinking, which is really like planning is always actually half the battle won, right? <laughs> so thinking about things is in you know, uh, think about investing and how you're going to go about it is actually really really important. So I, I really appreciate that. Um, in terms of, so I wouldn't say ten percent is too much, but I'll caveat it in some ways. Ten percent is not too much because your ETF has like you know if it's I don't know NASDAQ 100 has got 100 companies on it mm-hmm. so you've got 10% but that 10% is spread across effectively 100 companies of course market weighted so it's not you're not concentrated the thing that I would try to understand before I diversify across all these different ETFs is there'll be some overlap across the ETFs because if you buy, I don't know, cybersecurity and you buy NASDAQ 100, it's quite likely that there are some here that are also there. You might want to look at how much overlap you're creating. For example, like if you're getting most of the stuff that you want to get with X, 
uh, and, and you're also buying Y and you're paying more in fees, that there might be some optimizations that can be done. Uh, that's something to think about uh, because Nasdaq 100 is tech and hack, uh, you know, I think is, he's talking about hack, is also tech. Mm-hmm. Um, but maybe maybe cybersecurity has more mid-cap uh, exposure. So that's that's the something to think about. So that's one thing I would Not think yet. about, but I don't think 10% is too much. Um, so the only other thing I can think about is, or this is rather a question, is the 2.5% is the amount of cash that you are allocating right now, right? Yep. What happens if your individual company 10 bags and then it becomes 10% of portfolio? Maybe that yeah, that might be actually a good problem to have. Yep. Sometimes those are actually good problems to have because if you have something that's 10% of the portfolio, and, and Scott just mentioned MDP, I think you know MDP's largest position uh, is probably more than 10% right now. Mm-hmm. And, is, and, and exciting, you know, if you, yeah, and if you had trimmed it along the way to like bring it back to like three or four percent, then you would not have that sixteen, and maybe you'd not have you know beaten the market and, and so on and so forth. So that, that's something to think about. Is it's I think it's a good rule of thumb. At least I I have a rule of thumb that I try to have like between you know one and two percent as a startup position for my individual companies, mm-hmm. and then I build and I sort of never put more than five percent of my capital. Five to six percent of my capital, total capital that I invest into a company, uh, as a position. But then I let it grow, though. Like if it grows and becomes ten percent, that's fine. Uh, grows and becomes twenty percent, that's okay. And then at some point, you know, you you should be thinking about, you know, well, it becomes <laughs> too large. Then it introduces its own sort of volatility and single company yeah. risks and so on. Yeah. But uh, yeah, so that that's what I would think about. Uh, then the final thing I would think about is, again, you're picking. So suppose you've got ASX 200 mm-hmm. or ASX 300 exposure and you're picking ASX shares, well, there's going to be some overlap there again unless you're expressly picking outside the 300, right? So that's something again. And the same thing would hold for U.S. shares as well, right? I mean, if you're buying NASDAQ 100 and you're buying U.S. shares from the from ShareAdvisor, there's going to be some overlap. So you might want to just think about the overlap Final thing that I'd say is that another way to organize a portfolio might be well, if you're going to buy individual shares, maybe you want to have one ETF as anchor, hmm. and rest you could just have, you know, as as individual positions. And you could almost you sometimes even mimic what the index the index is doing, or across the com- sectors that you like, just pick. Hmm pick some of the top holdings there and just hold them. That's another way to do it. Awesome, mate. I like that. Nick, I, I, I agree with Doc. Um, I think that's, you, you come up with some really good thoughts there, mate. I have no problem with the ETF shares split necessarily. Um, it's all individual preference. And if you feel more comfortable with ETFs rather than pick individual stocks and the volatility we just talked about, that, that's awesome. If that's right for you, that's great. Um, I own a few ETFs. I don't think, Doc, you own any? You probably own a couple, do you? None? Uh, I don't own any ETFs. There we go. So you can do anywhere, anywhere you want, anywhere from 100% to 0%, anywhere in between. Um, do that. Do that based on your own on your own risk appetite and your own comfort with volatility. I I got to say, I would be a little bit uncomfortable, mate, with attempt. I think no more than 10% in a single ETF makes sense. But I think if you had two, three or four ETFs that were kind of thematically specific. I don't know why I necessarily would want to have 40% of a portfolio, for example, in some themes that may not be sustainable in and of themselves. So I don't dislike any of the ETFs necessarily that he's talking about, but I kind of think you know, having 10% of a portfolio in one ETF with on a theme might be okay. 
if you start to have, both, as you say, both overlap and some more kind of thematic picking, at some point, I, I don't know if I feel super comfortable about, you know, X percent of a portfolio in, in yeah, I mean, imagine if you've gone, you know, a 10% in a pot stock ETF and 10% in a 3D printing ETF. And I'm, I mean, I'm kidding a little bit, but, you know, you could potentially have, have run down some hot stuff that maybe, let, you know, burnt some capital. So I don't know. I think individually 10% makes sense, but if you had three or four of them, 40% in those would start to feel uncomfortable to me for what it's worth. Um, that being said, the really broad ETFs, I'd have no problem having more than that. So if you're going to buy the NASDAQ 100 or the S&P 500 or the Global World or the ASX, I'd have no problem having 15 or 20% of those ETFs um, in and of themselves because I think there's just no reason not to. The the positions are so small within those. Um you know, just it is what it is. I mean, you know, to to, to again, call out Warren Buffett, he said that ninety percent of his estate is going to go into S and P five hundred index fund. Um, so he's putting you know ninety percent in a single fund, and I think that would be perfectly fine. Um, you could absolutely do that. I don't think you need to have too many ETFs for the sake of it. Um, as long as you're as long as the ones you have are super diversified, broadly diversified, low cost index ETFs. Um, I'll echo your point about the the, the individual ones too, man. I. I got to say, Nick, I wouldn't necessarily run down too many ETFs. I don't know you need that many for the sake of it. Um, at some point, if you've got, I mean, you've listed about eight or nine, I think. At some point, you kind of, uh, A, there might be overlaps as Doc says. B, I don't know whether you need to make that many different calls. Um, and by the time you've done that, you're kind of being active anyway. At some point, you might as well have the individual shares or at least you have to have done the work to make sure you know that global cybersecurity or global healthcare or uh, Australian uh, iShares Global Clean Energy ETFs. You have to have done the work, understand the companies, understand their valuations, understand their futures. Um, if you've done that, you might as well pick the stocks, as Doc said. So I, I'm I'm generally a little bit saying on about broad ETFs. I'm a little less comfortable with with specific ones unless you've done the work. And I said if you have, then you might as well pick the stocks. You probably know the best ones out of those to to choose. Um, so I'd say that um, I've made my comments before about sustainability stocks. Um, I think it's greenwashing largely. Um, I won't say that the individual ETFs we're talking about here. I'm not making that that claim or allegation for the record, just to be really clear and keep me out of court. Um, I don't think as an investor it makes any difference which stocks you own. We've talked about that before. We'll talk about it again, I'm sure. Once the shares are already listed, doesn't matter that I own them or you own them or someone else owns them. If I sell all my BHP shares, someone's going to buy them from me. BHP is going to have the same number of shareholders with the same operations doing the same things. Whether I own them or not, it makes absolutely no difference. So I, I'd be careful only because, well, I don't think it's worthwhile. B, you're going to pay high fees because those are more actively managed ETFs. So just be careful about the fees you're loading up with when you're doing this, as Doc's already said. Um, that's it. I reckon that's pretty much my answer. But I mean, look, love the structure. As Doc says, also think about, you know, are you saying a starter position of two and a half or how do you trim your positions to so have a selling plan? Hopefully that plan is not to sell or not sell very often, but just be be mindful of that and how you how you might how you might work that work that out and sort of go from there. Um, Doc, one one each just finish quickly to finish off for each of us to get through a couple of quick questions. First one from Sam. Hi, Scott and Doc. Love the podcast and the insights you bring consistently each and every week. Thank you, Sam. This question is for Doc. Seriously, Sam. Come on, dude. He says, you frequently mentioned the size of a particular market and also the past and projected growth of that market to help guide your investment strategy. He says, can you recommend any go-to sources of trusted market information where you get such figures to help inform our own investment decisions? He says, or is Google our best friend? Full on Sam. So yeah, Doc, we've talked a lot about you know databases or um, electric vehicles or... I don't know, pick whatever, whatever, whatever topic you want to talk about. Uh, you know, to some degree, you talk about the total addressable market, the TAM. Um, how do you how do you go about understanding the size and the growth of those particular markets? Okay, so uh, some relatively easy. Well, your Bing search can be your friend, 
if you if you yeah, wanted but. to run a search, um, <laughs> Statistica is is a good source for uh, trends and data. It's actually a really good okay. collection of data, and you can most of the things you can see without a subscription. You can just search it and find it. You know, the best place I've found for these market information is um, annual reports from U.S. listed companies. Right. They, pro- they produce annual reports that are really detailed and often have a background section. So, for example, if you're interested in understanding about the payments market, mm. uh, reading the Visa uh, annual report is like a gold mine. You will understand everything about what is merchant acquiring, how does the bank fit, how does the merchant fit, how does the Mm -hmm. payment highway work, what's the size of the market, how much cash is there in the world. And and that's just a goldmine of information. And then you can just, you know, one of the reasons I keep banging about international investing is to just broaden people's knowledge horizon because Mm -hmm. that information can then be applied in many different ways. And you just, Mm -hmm. you you know, being more informed is always better than being less informed. So... uh, Think about the large companies listed overseas and look yep. at their annual reports. And often you'll find a lot of TAM information just there uh, in the background. So you don't have to read the numbers or the details specific to the company if you're not interested in that company, but the background information is mm. just, it's, it's actually there to look. Now, of course, you can read these things with uh, you know a pinch of salt. Um, if you don't, if you think uh, Visa's information is not quite up to the mark, then maybe pick pick up something else like PayPal, and and uh, or an e-commerce company, and then just read that. Right. So I think that that has always been my go-to, like to find data, and I find that data to be, um, you know, quite reliable. Beautiful. I like that, mate. Yeah, I, I was going to ask you about that question. I, I'm always skeptical when a company leads its annual report, particularly in Australia, the presentations with, they talk about the market size, the market growth, and eventually on page 84, you find the company's own metrics. I always feel like I'm being sold a little bit of kind of, you know, look at the story, look at the sizzle, look at the sizzle, not much at the stake. I guess it's probably both, right? You want to have a sense of how big the sizzle could be. You don't want to lose the stake in the process. Yep. All right, mate, uh, last one for me, and then we'll we'll uh, finish up because, you know, it's New Year's Day. We've got to go and celebrate and all that kind of good stuff. Um, question we had from Tim. Uh, Tim's also giving you a hashtag, you'll like, Doc, so let's go with this. Hey, fools, he says, I love the podcast. Thank you, mate. I'm also a happy subscriber to SANEO. I have a question for Scott. I'm a shareholder in Soul Pats as a recommendation from SA. Me too. And it's up 70% in a few months. Nice. I didn't ask you to say that, Tim, but thank you for throwing that in. I, I'd have to read it out, of course. He says, looking at the ASX announcements, I noticed they have a big holding in New Hope Coal. Given you don't love investing in mining, does this holding concern you? Keep up the great work. And hashtag, I'm with Doc, stop the talk. So there you go, mate. You've got one, one supporter against the, the absolute avalanche of listeners who are desperate to have you on TikTok, mate. So Tim is holding back the tide as much as he can. I don't know if he'll be successful. I have a feeling... 2021 this year is your year for TikTok, mate. But in any case, Tim is going to stand with you if you choose to uh, to, if you choose to ignore the the, the, the baying crowd. If you uh, if you don't want to do it, I guess Tim will, Tim will hold your hand and help you out in that one. But we'll see. We'll see. Um, Tim, I have a love hate relationship with New Hope Coal. Um, I, very, when we made the very very first Solpats recommendation, I want to say it was like 2012 or 13. Doc, I can't remember now. Um, I remember Bruce. We talked about you mentioned Bruce Jackson, our boss. Uh, he he hit me up on probably would have been Skype back in the day. It wouldn't have been Slack back then. And said, "Hey, you don't like coal? What are you doing with Solpats? You know what, what's going on there?" Uh, now I am happy to say, by the way, the recommendation is market beating. I'm happy with that. So so far it hasn't hurt us. Um, <coughs> there's two things really for me. I think 
I, look, I wouldn't buy New Hope Coal shares myself. I don't know enough about the industry, nor do I feel super excited about the long-term future of the industry. Um, any personal climate change views I have aside, the the world is moving towards a low-carbon future, um, either by for cost reasons or for regulatory reasons or both um, and some social license reasons. Um, I think it's very, very likely many of the coal deposits that are now known and owned will be left in the ground over time. And so New Hope is really pushing uphill to try and make some money on that on that basis. I don't love the holding. I don't love the fact they own it. But two things. Firstly, I don't know the business anywhere near as well as the guys at Solpats do. Um, so I'll, I'll give them that. Actually, three things. Second thing, uh, I it is, it is considered, I don't think this is biased from my perspective, though I'll always be mindful of it. It's considered the best run coal mine in the country. I believe that's true. Their costs are good. Their operations are good. They run a very good ship. So to some degree, whatever money is left to be made from coal, I imagine you hope will make some of it and that'll be good. Third thing is it doesn't, you know, I don't love it. I'd be more than happy if they got rid of it, but I'm not going to let it um, push me away from owning Solpat shares. As you, as you say yourself, Tim, 70% up in the last few months. Now, we didn't predict that, of course. We never do. Um, so happy about it. Surprised, but happy. Um, we could have missed that if we'd said, oh, it's got some coal. Let's not go there. And so, you know, from that perspective, it's a bit like owning an ETF, right? Would I prefer to own an ETF without some companies? I guess probably. I'd, I'd take the airlines out given the choice. I'd probably take the banks out given the choice. Um, uh, you know, maybe, maybe you can find ETFs that allow that, by the way. But, you know, generally speaking, I wouldn't let the presence of some things that I don't love push me away from the rest of the business that is run really well, has a really good long-term track record. Um, maybe they're right, by the way. Manage, maybe managers are just right and I'm wrong. That's also very possible. So uh, I'm not arrogant enough to believe I know everything about everything. Uh, so I'm happy enough. Again, if they sold it, I'd be stoked. Uh, but I'm not going to let it dissuade me from owning a company that I expect to have good long-term market beating returns from this point uh, just because I happen to have a business that I don't love. Um, almost all businesses do, right, to some degrees. Solpat's is easier because it's a conglomerate. So you can look at it and go, oh, that bit, they could sell that bit or that bit looks separate or it's over here. Um, you know, I don't love that Woolies have pokies, for example. Um, would I not buy the shares because that? No, you know, um, there's plenty of other businesses that have parts of their business. I'm like, really, guys, you're doing that? Do you really want to do that? Uh, uh, West Farmers has Office Works and Kmart. Uh, sorry, Kmart and Target, right? Terrible businesses, <laughs> really terrible businesses. But I like Bunnings, I like Officeworks, I like the rest of their company. So I wouldn't avoid West Farmers because they own Kmart and Target, for example. Doc, do you have any, any thoughts on that? Either, either conceptually about Solpats, about coal, about conglomerates or, or business, you know, bits of business you like and don't like, how you think about something like this, this question? Oh, no, I think, you know, I would basically just be repeating almost everything that you have said. So why repeat? I think I just agree well, with what you would, you know. I'm right. And I would like to hear my own words quoted back at me. Obviously, that's the right. <laughs> well, let me just make it. I think, I, I think Scott is right there. Uh, you know, there we go. And, and just to, let's make Scott happy. Um, but, but yeah, I, I thought that was just, this was just spot on. I think there's nothing there for me to add, really. You know, sometimes we don't know is the reality, right? We just don't yeah, know. Totally. We just have to accept that we don't know. So that's okay. Yeah. And these guys are so much closer to it. Like, you know, for me to for me to think from, you know, I, I, don't, I don't know what you think, Doc. Analysts and investors, we, we kind of get a bit arrogant sometimes. And there's so many, if you if you follow Twitter or some of the commentary and some of the articles people write, they're telling company X or Y or Z how they should run their business. And sometimes those analysts have good ideas and sometimes those businesses are badly run. But I've got to say, like Rob Miller has been doing this for, I guess, probably 30, 40 years. Like I could have a view on New Hope and I might even be right, but it would be remarkably arrogant of me to sort of start telling people like that, hey, you know what you should do with this business? Here's what you should do. Um, now, if they're bad managers, of course, you know, sell your shares or maybe have that view by all means. And there are some constructive activist investors who do go and improve businesses. But 
I'm just always reminded that, frankly, the chances that an outsider, whether it's me or somebody else, can genuinely tell a business manager, a good, successful business manager, how better to run his business, it's probably it's probably reasonably light on. So I'm I'm always mindful of just a little bit of humility goes a long way, I think, sometimes. Yeah, I agree. All right, mate, that's it. We're done. The very first podcast for the year is in the bag, out of the way, in the can. All those good things that sound exciting but don't mean that much. Before we go, though, start the year off. Here's a New Year's resolution for you. Come and join us at The Motley Fool. If you're not already a member, join Doc at Motley Fool Extreme Opportunities. Go to fool.com.au forward slash EO podcast and get what I think is probably the very best value investment service in the country. That's fool.com.au forward slash EO podcast. And because it's a new year, because you're feeling generous and because, frankly, two is better than one, also join Motley Fool Share Advisor. When you finish joining EO, Jump back into your address bar and type in fool.com.au forward slash SA podcast and join us at Motley Fool Share Advisor as well. Two has got to be better than one, right? Myself and Andrew Leggett run Motley Fool Share Advisor. We do our best to bring you some great stocks. Uh, Our track record is longer than docs, but not quite as good. So you can have a bit of both there. You have some extra long-term track record from Share Advisor and some extra great returns from Motley Fool Extreme Opportunities. And I think, as we mentioned before with our samplers, two's better than one and buying a group of stocks from those two scorecards I think is a very very good way to build your long-term investment success now we can make no promises of course the legal eagles wouldn't appreciate it and frankly we wouldn't do it because we're not those sort of people but we will promise you one thing that is we'll keep doing our best to find you the best stocks we can and bring you the best investment performance from those investment mandates that we can so come and join us fool.com.au eo podcast and fool.com.au forward slash sa podcast and of course follow us on the socials Info at fool.com.au is the email address. You can get us on Insta and Twitter at the Motley Fool AU or at TMF Scott P. And you can get Doc on Twitter at, at Anirban Mahanti. And of course, you can get us on Facebook, the Motley Fool Australia and Scott Phillips Money. That's it, mate. We're done for the very first podcast of the year. And in the meantime, we'll be back Sunday because guess what, mate? It's a new year. But there are still some very special mailbag episodes to come. So don't worry, fools. We haven't forgotten. The specialists will continue. We'll see you on Sunday with a special little bit of foolish mailbag insight. Fool on. Fool on. The Motley Fool and people appearing in this program may have positions in the companies mentioned. General advice only. Please speak to your financial professional to understand how it may pertain to your situation. Subscribe to the free newsletter at fool.com.au forward slash triple M. The Motley Fool operates under financial services license 400691.